on the bulletin. I'm telling you, how many of you even looked at the bulletins? Okay, that is correct. Do you see this? This is a picture of an animal. It is not a cheetah. This is not very fast. You know, cheetahs are fast. What do you think this animal is good for? I know. Eating your trash. <laughs> Eating your trash? Hmm. Let me think. That's, goats, goats often do that. But this is not just any kind of a goat. This is called a ram. And how do I know it's a ram? If any of you have a Dodge truck, it's the, the, horns. the horns. That's redemption anticipated. Redemption anticipated. There's going to be two other words that follow through on this that you'll see through our series, the four weeks leading up to Good Friday. But in anticipation, you know, my first thought was that commercial that some of you might remember of the ketchup bottle. You know, there was that one ketchup that was supposedly so thick that when you turned it upside down, you had to wait. You know, and you'd bang on the end of it and you'd hope that some would come out. And uh, they even had a song, Anticipation, it's making me wait. Now, waiting is not something that we all want to do. We don't want to wait in the traffic. We don't want to wait in the red lights. We don't want to wait to go through intersections. We don't want to wait at the doctor's office. We don't want to wait. We don't like anticipation. So I wanted you to be able to get a glimpse of what God had already set in motion from beginning, from beginning of time. In fact, if you look at the Bible verse that's in the bulletin card, uh, it is the one that is printed there from 1 Peter uh, 1, 19 through 20. And if you listen to that text that Peter, who was there through all the events in the New Testament, he says to, his, to, his, uh, to the people he's writing to, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb... Without a blemish or spot, this Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest or was revealed in these last days, in these last times, for your sake. Now, when you think through that for a moment, you've got already the connection points of Jesus being the Lamb of God or being like that ram that I just held up. And when did God make this known? Before time began, before the cosmic clock was started, before God even made anything in this, in this universe, God had already purposed that Jesus would be the Lamb of God slain from before the foundations of the world in Genesis 1.1. Now we're in Genesis chapter 22. We're just a few chapters later, and if you look at the years, it's probably just about just over 2,000 years or two millenniums which is really roughly the same amount of time it's been since Jesus has, has ascended into heaven to our day. It's roughly two millennia. Now, when you, when, you, um, when you factor these things in, when you try to understand it, uh, Genesis chapter 22 is God's design for us to be able to put the pieces together. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals. Uh, Genesis 22. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of, and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 4. On the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go on over there and will worship and come again to you. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And Abram said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire, behold the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8. Abraham answered, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, so they went both of them together. Verse 9, and when they came to the place that God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But, this is one of the best times you'll hear the word but. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The text goes on to say, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said to him, My, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll take this text. It is common to some of us. It is uncommon to many. Oh, Lord, I pray that you might speak to us, that you might show us things that we might otherwise have missed. Oh, Lord, I pray that we might be prepared to come to your table and to dine. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you think about what's going on here, it is a tremendous story. 
It is tremendous. But I'm going to, going to challenge you to, to see this story from the perspective that's on the front of your bulletin. I want you to connect this story to Good Friday. I'm going to do my best as a pastor to unpack it and to be able to show you that this was God's design from the very beginning so that those people who know Father Abraham will come to know his greater son, Jesus. It's all in there. It's all in there. This, con- this last Friday, we had a movie we call a dinner and a movie night, and it was well attended. There were quite a few people gathered here uh, They were wearing green, largely because it was St. Patrick's Day. We were having some fun. The film was was actually shot on location in Ireland. And so we did, uh, before the movie started, there were some pictures of of, uh, the scenery there. Oh, it was beautiful. You know, along the coast with the the waves crashing in. It was quite, quite the interesting story. But today I want to take you on another journey. A journey that will take you to the Holy Land, yes but a journey that will take you through time back into the holy drama that was unfolding many, many years ago. As I said, when you back it all up, you can see that it's during the time of Abraham and Sarah. And it was a time when God was revealing things to mankind because there was no other way for mankind to know it. If you think back, excuse me, Abraham has been on this earth, and there's not seven billion people. There's no airplanes that he could get on to be able to cross time zones. Abraham was living in a world that had a small population. It had been greatly reduced by one of his uh, great-great-great-grandfathers named Noah. I'm just trying to give you a little perspective that Abraham was a contemporary of Job, But this, in chapter 12, is where we're introduced. But in chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. In chapter 9 and 10 is Noah. I want you to get this perspective that Abraham might have even known Noah in his lifetime. We don't know all these details. But what we do know is that the word of God was scarce. They didn't have churches. They didn't have synagogues. They didn't have a lot of things. They just had the oral history that was being passed down. And if you've watched Abraham, he's following in the example that Noah himself had done when he got off the ark and set up an altar, which was following the example that had been set all the way back with Adam and Eve's sons, with Cain and Abel, when they were first told to come into God's presence. Now, all of these things fit together, and it's all in the early parts of the book of Genesis. So therefore, as you're following along, I want you to come with me on this journey. And I want to dispel a couple of myths. I want to expel the myth that there is no gospel found in the Old Testament. I want to make sure that you can see the good news. And I don't want you to believe the deception that there's no grace back there before the time of Christ. There are some in some denominations that advance this idea of dispensations. And they want to be able to say that now we're living in the age of grace, in the church age. And I don't disagree with them that we are living in a time of grace. When the churches are, uh, you know, God's uh, ambassadors to this world. 
Some of them go to great extremes where I went to my university down in Lynchburg. There was a great big emphasis on it. But when they do that and they say we're in the church age, they almost want to rip out the pages of the Old Testament and tell you that there was no gospel there. That there was not a big emphasis on salvation. I want to begin by telling you that there is. And when you look at Genesis 22, I want you to see the gospel just as clearly as you can in Genesis 3, where the first presentation of the hope for mankind was given. Genesis 3.15 was as clear as a bell when when God says to the woman, out of you shall be one born who will crush Satan. He'll crush the serpent's head. In other words, there's going to be one born to mankind who is going to accomplish this. And that is seen in Jesus. But in Genesis 22, we get to see how he's going to do it. We get to see more color being brought into this story. It is fascinating. And and, And in this way, God not only helps us to anticipate the gospel, but it also begins to help us who have now seen the gospel accomplished to apply it. We are, leaving, we are truly living in a different era than they did back in those days. In Noah's day, in Abraham's day, there was a lot of blood that had to be offered if you came to church. But now when you come to church, even at the communion table, how much blood do you see? None. If any of you see blood in church, we probably need a Band-Aid on it. The point is that blood was shed. It was accomplished So that now it's applied to our hearts and not in the ceremonies and in the sacrifices uh, externally. So I want to make sure that you get that grace is seen before the cross. That you can see that the true gospel is a message that was proclaimed way before you came to this church or before you heard it in your own ears. The gospel is here. Having said that, I'm going to take you on this journey, and it's almost like taking you to uh, New Zealand to watch The Lord of the Rings being filmed. I'm actually going to take you to the Holy Land, and I want you to be able to see the way it was. And as we unpack it, some of the points that you'll be able to take if you're keeping notes, uh, the first point that we're going to take you to is to the storyboard. Because as you watch this whole narrative unfold, uh, and just like I've seen when I went to Disney and they talk about writing a cartoon, they give you a storyboard, they give you a timeline so you can see how things unfolded. You know what I'm talking about? To give you a perspective of where it's going. In the storyboard, you can see in Genesis chapter 22, the first words. And if you're following along, you can see it in your text. After these things. What things is he talking about? In order to present the gospel in chapter 22, there were some other things that had to be unfolded. Other things that were put in here. And and it all had to do with time. It was after the things that happened in chapters 12 through 21. So let me quickly rehearse in chapter 12, 15, and 17. There was something that was really, really, really cool. We talked about it last week. It was God saying to people like you and I, you're mine. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. 
We're going to enter into a relationship that is not going to be fluctuating. It's not going to change because there's not going to be a change of administration. It's not like from one president to the next. It's not like moving from Democrats to Republicans to independents or to whatever. It's going to be this way because I'm a part of it, God says. I'm going to be the God and you're going to be the people. These are the rules. This is the terms and this is how it's going to be maintained. You're going to be my people. You're going to live holy lives separated unto me. You're going to be marked off as mine. And I'm going to be your God and I'll be with you to the end. Even to the end of the age. Chapters 12, 15 and 17. You can see all this covenantal language. You can see the circumcision being started. You can see all these things unfolding. And all of this stuff was pretty fascinating to Abraham. It was. Chapter 21 is now the next stage in that application. God has entered into a relationship. You're going to be mine. And then God starts to do something that none of us like to have. He, like, he starts to separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. And in chapter 21, it starts out with some laughter and it ends with some crying. Chapter 21 is where we get introduced to a guy named Laughter. Isaac. You remember why people laughed? Not many of you understand that story, do you? (laughs) Isaac's mom was old. (laughs) And when she got pregnant, she laughed at Jesus. Who, me? You expect me to be a mom? I'm in my 90s. And so when that boy was born, every time they said, Isaac, Isaac, or Isaac, however you want to pronounce it, it was a call to laughter. That God, his agenda was being brought to pass. Isaac had been long awaited for. He had been waited for for 25 years. And he finally came. But in this story, I told you it starts off with the laughter because Isaac shows up onto the scene. He's now the predominant character. But when Isaac becomes the predominant character, he becomes the only begotten son, the son that was promised. Guess what that moves to the other guy? Ishmael. Ishmael no longer becomes the favored son. And Ishmael is kicked out. And in chapter 21, I remember back in high school when my... Bible teacher used to say that Hagar and Ishmael, they packed up their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and headed out into the wilderness. I had to look to see if there was peanut butter and jelly in the text. I believed them. I never forgot, but how sad it was. When God was separating, he said, there's a child of promise and there's a child who is of the law. You see, Ishmael was... was, uh, was the product of Sarah, Sarah's helping God. It wasn't the product of Sarah. Sarah had said to Ishmael's mom, if you will go in and, and get pregnant with, with, uh, with, with Abraham, that's the way we'll help God out. You see, and so when she leaned on her own understanding to try to accomplish God's will, it created a big mess. And in chapter 21, we see the sorrow of that mess as Ishmael has to leave because God is going to bring about his salvation, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Now, that's where we start off. It was after these things. We see the things unfolding in chapter 21. And now we find, 
After things are set, the storyboard is set for us so that now the gospel is going to be explained through Isaac. Do you see that? Chapter 22 is a lot about Isaac. I didn't say Jesus. I said Isaac. And Isaac is just like who? He's a lot like us. And when you look at Isaac and how, how Isaac comes through this storyboard, you're going to say, that should have been me. That is me. And then when you unpack it a little later, you're going to be able to say, wow, but I thought that that was Christ. We'll show you in just a moment. So the first thing is the storyboard. We see how it's unfolding. God is going to bring about his salvation. It was after he set up the covenant, after he separated Ishmael and Isaac. And now he's going to say, I want you to see the gospel, people. I want you in the Old Testament to see what I'm going to do to save people from their sins. Beautiful. So. The first thing was the storyboard. The second is the cast of players. I've already introduced you to a little bit of them. But, the, but if you were casting these players, the first one you'd have to cast is for the role of father. The second would be the role of son. Third, you'd have to cast the helpers. And then you'd cast the substitute, the stand-in. Um, you might call him the, uh, you know, the action hero. But the one who is going to, when, when things get tough, you know, you hit timeout and then they go and they bring the substitute guy in, the crash dummy. Now, if you're following along with me, the cast of characters in the gospel presentation of Genesis 22, the father figure. Did you notice? Abraham is fulfilling that cast, that role. He is he is called the father of many nations. Abba is, is what Abraham's name actually means. It's really interesting, but he is being chosen to fulfill this role because there is another one that he's paralleling, and it is God the Father. And so you see the parallels, don't you? Now, the second person that is cast in this story is the son. And I'm particularly using that terminology because you're going to see these same roles are explained for us in the New Testament, John chapter 19. But the son... The only begotten son. That was chosen to be filled by Isaac. He was the one that was born out of due season. People had waited for him for years and years. Now for Isaac, they had waited for him 25 years. Because when Abraham was, was called out of the land of, of, of Ur, he was 75 years old. And when he finally has this boy, he's 100 years old. So he's been waited for for 25 years. Now... If you mention Isaac, Isaac also parallels Jesus. Because if you know John 3.16, you'll know, For God the Father loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Do you hear the same similar language? The Son whom he loves. And that is the picture of Christ. Who we had to wait in anticipation, not only for some years, but also for, for centuries. Until Galatians 4.4 4 said, in the fullness of time, God finally sent forth his son. It was more than 25 years. But do you see how the cast? Isaac was a great illustration for Christ, and he was a great illustration for us. Now, I told you there were some other helpers because when Abraham was getting ready to go, he was down in the land of Beersheba, and he had to make his whole journey over to this region where the hills are, the seven hills. And he had a company of people help him. 
They were the helpers. And in a sense, that's the people that we go through journey of life with. They're easy. They don't name anybody's names. And, and they're the people that you surround yourself in your life. They're just fill-ins. And then you have the substitute. Now, some of you might have missed this before, but this is such a key character in the story. You can't have the story without it. Who's the substitute? The animal. The ram that's caught in the thicket. That ram is so essential to the story. You don't have the story if you don't have him in there. How was he cast? I wonder if he had to line up with about 20 other rams and say, well, which one are we going to pick to fill this role? No. God had ordained that that little animal would have been born in the fullness of time and grown up, and it would have found its way to that location, and it had big enough horns that it was caught in the bushes that were there. And they must have been pretty significant for him to be right there, right behind Abraham when the right time was coming. Now, I'm trying to paint this picture for you as a movie set. So we've already had the storyboard. We have the cast that's before us. Now I want to be able to tell you the stage, the stage that is set for us. Now, mind you, you've gone with me through time to the Holy Land. We haven't taken the airplane, but presto, we're right there. We're in Abraham's day, and when you're standing there in the hills of Judea, what do you see? You see hills. There's nothing else out there, folks. There's no big cities. There's no big this. There's nothing going on. There's no, there's no McDonald's there. Okay, this is a long time ago. God says, I've got the perfect stage to film this, this thing. He said, it's not down in Beersheba. It's going to be up in this area. But up in that area, there was no other town. There was no other city. There was no nothing. He says, I'll show you where I want you to go. And Abraham was already in the habit of following God's directions. Turn here. Turn here. Recalculate. You know, Abraham knew how to run that GPS. What I'm getting at is God was taking him to the perfect location. It was amongst the seven hills that were up around this community that was going to be developing soon called Jabus. And upon one of the hilltops, he was going to go called Moriah. Moriah. Mount Moriah. Now, Abraham had to make the journey through the hills and to be able to finally get there. It took him three days to get there. He could have stood at any other mountain. He passed a lot of them. And I was just there a year ago, January. There's a lot of hills out there. But none of them saw fit for the perfect location because the gospel was going to be presented through the stage that was set. So God takes Abraham, the father, to this particular hill. And when he gets to that hill, he says, you guys stay over here. And I would picture it that they were standing on the other side of one of the valleys, maybe the Kidron Valley. Now, for those of you that hear these terms, he might have had the group of people staying over in the area of the Garden of Gethsemane because they were going to cross over and climb the hill and get to the top of Mount Moriah, which if I'm trying to help you to begin to connect the dots, this is the same place that some other cool things happened. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn, you'll see it in, in uh, second, excuse me, in uh, in Colossians, Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. So Solomon began to build the house of the Lord 
in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. There are Solomon's measurements for the building for the house of God. Now, what I'm trying to help you to see is there wasn't anything there when Abraham went there, but when David finally comes along about 500 years later, David is at the exact same location on Mount Moriah. He's gathered all the wood from Lebanon, from the cedars there, and he's gotten all the rocks together from the limestone and the quarry, and they brought them up to the same Mount Moriah. And what are they going to build there? The temple. Solomon's temple. They were going to build a house for God. And the Holy of Holies was going to be right at this exact same location where the ram in the thicket had been caught. And it was going to be from that point forward that there was going to be sacrifices offered that the people would come from all over the world to Jerusalem at the exact same place where the ram was caught in the thicket. Do you see the location, the stage? I imagine that when Abraham climbed up that hill and his boy was asking him, Dad, we've got everything for the sacrifice except for the animal, that they were walking past the place of the skull, which in the Aramaic is called Golgotha. You see, that's the stage. And for those of you that can see it today, you're going to begin to see how the gospel was anticipated The details are all there if you look. You'll never look at at Genesis 22 again without seeing that that's where the Lamb of God was going to be slain. And so when you see this stuff unfolding, the details are amazing. Now, not done. Because Jesus went there many years later, and I'll touch on that in a moment. The stage has been set. We've already had the characters and the cast already set with the Father and the Son. And now we move on to the script. What needs to be said? Now, whenever you get a good script, if you have somebody that has that, that uh, skill to be able to read the documents and make sense and make the flow of things, they always make the story very compelling. And they, they don't just usually have silent movies because we actually have sound these days. In the old days, you had to do all the hand motions and all that. You remember some of those Abbott and Costello things? Silent movies? But not so with the gospel. You have dialogue. So we have these characters and they have some roles to play. And isn't it interesting that if you listen to the roles that that the father says to the son and the son says to the father, now that you're listening, I'm hoping that you will see the parallel. They go to this area on the third day, verse 4. Abraham lifted his eyes. Verse 5, Abraham said, this is part of the script Stay here with the donkeys, and we're going to go over there and worship and then come to you again. As I said, can you see that they're on the other side of the valley? It's very possible that they were on the Mount of Olives. And the, and the, and the, the old olive trees that had been down there when I've seen them, I imagine there were some olive trees growing there at that time. And so it appears that these guys stayed over on that side of the Kidron Valley where they could look up to the, to, to the Mount Moriah. Stay over here. We're going to go over and we're going to worship. 
You see, whenever you write a script, you have to have a genre for your script. You have to decide whether it's going to be a mystery, whether it's going to be a love story, whether it's going to be an action film. You know, sometimes you cast your players according to what you expect it to be. Now, for those of you that pay attention, some of you might say, oh, this is not with Van Diesel or with uh, Chuck Norris. You know, we, we don't see those kind of action things or with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But what you end up seeing in this story is that there is a mystery. They're going to worship. They're going to meet with God. Now, I want you to know, how do they cast God's character? Well, God is a holy God. God is a sovereign God. God is a God who's involved because you can see that God speaks. God gives directions. God has a perfect place. God has a stage that is set. God has a timetable already unfold. God's in charge. Do you see it? So when you come to meet with God, do you come on your own terms or do you come on his? You come on his. And so as the story goes, they are going to go meet with God to acknowledge him as God, to worship him. Verse 6, the dialogue goes, and Abraham took the wood, the burnt offering, he laid it on his son. They carried it through. They started to climb this hill. They have the fire and, one, and probably a torch. They probably have uh, the, the knife. It probably wasn't a Ginsu knife or anything like that, but it was sufficient to be able to get done what needed to get done, which was to slice the arteries to be able to get the blood to flow. He took his hand, took the fire, took the knife. Verse 7, and Isaac says to his dad, my father. Now, if I say it like this, you guys might hear it this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you see the same parallel? My father, behold, here's the fire, here's the wood. Where? Is the lamb. Wow. Wow. This, there's the mystery to it. If you're in Isaac's shoes, you're saying, boy, there better be a better plot to this story than what I think is going on. But as Isaac is being tied down on top of this altar, this is the point where we need to understand it as we come to the Lord's table. Why was Isaac going to be put there? Is it because we have a sicko God that wants to kill people and enjoy child sacrifice? No. Atheists always get this one wrong. We are not serving a God that enjoys that kind of stuff. The gospel is being presented and is being put in such a way that you can feel it. You can feel the price that's required. The wage of human sin is death. And Isaac was a sinner. Boy, was he a sinner. Isaac was going to have to pay for his sin. And the idea of him being put on the cross is not something that's, that makes us get sick at God. What it should do is it should make us get sick at what? At our own sin. The wages of our sin, the wages of your sin would put you on that altar. There is none of us that are righteous. Not even one. But some of us are plagued by besetting sins. Some of us give room to a few of these white lies or little good things, right? But you know, no matter what kind of sin it is, it's still sin. And no matter how small it is or how big it is, it would still put you there. With Isaac. 
Because that's what a holy God demands if you're going to meet with him. There is not one sin that can be swept under the rug. If you go to Exodus 34, 7, God says, I will by no means clear the guilty. You see, we have a holy, sovereign God. He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't make deals. He wouldn't even work with Trump. He is going to stay and not make any kind of extra plans. The only way that the anger of a sovereign God could be assuaged is that if the debt is paid in full. And when you see the gospel, Isaac is you and me. He deserved it. He deserved it. We deserve it. Now, praise God, that word B-U-T shows up. And that instead of us getting what we deserve, instead of Isaac getting what he deserved, instead of watching the father go through the grief of watching his beloved son, God said, time out. And in a sense, you can see the, the movie screen if you've got the movie camera and, and you're watching and it's all focused on Isaac. And Isaac is shut up because he knows that he deserves it. He knows that this is coming and there's nothing that's going to remedy it except God. And God says, stop. Turn the camera around behind Abraham. There's something else going on. In the mount of God, he will provide a substitute. There on the exact same hill of Moriah, Abraham finds a substitute, a temporary, a type, a shadow, a glimpse. But there, some 2,000 years later, the real Lamb of God was caught. He was bound to another piece of wood and he was hoisted up with a crown of thorns on his head. Not because he deserved it, but because he was the real substitute. I don't know if you're catching the gospel glimpse, but this is what disturbed my soul for years and years and years. I want to be able to tell this world, to tell this message to everybody that the gospel was not an afterthought. It was God's intention from the very beginning of time. And when you start to see how everything unfolds when the stage was set... And the substitute was going to be provided. It was finally and then only then when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, that the price was paid. And you're forgiven. You're forgiven. That's the gospel. You can see the storyline. Is it a mystery? There is some mystery to it. Is it an action film? You bet it is. Because the action of what Christ did is unparalleled by any special effect that anybody could ever do. Because the blood of Jesus paid for my sin. Did it pay for yours? There's more that can be said. And we'll pick up on these themes as we go through. I just want you to get the glimpse that the redemption was anticipated. Can't you see it right there? The exact location. All these things were being unfolded. And you can, you can see the plan of God. The plan. P-L-A-N. It's there. It's always been there. And secondly, in anticipation, you feel the pain. You sense the price that had to be paid. All of us that are sickened at the thought that the knife was going to come down on Isaac... Would you have done it for your own son? 
Would you sacrifice that? And most of us would say, oh, no, that's so gross and glory. That's what God the Father had to do to God the Son. It is gross. It is sickening. And that's why it only could happen once. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to him. Isn't it fascinating? The awfulness of the crucifixion is the very hope that we have that we don't have to suffer like that. And the resurrection is proof because he lives, his atonement was accomplished. You see, so we had anticipation, it was accomplished, and now it applies to our hearts. As we come to the Lord's table today, the application is for you today in 2017. It's not for you 10 years ago, it's for you today. When you come to this table, we're not standing on Mount Moriah, but we could be there. If I took you back there and I showed you pictures, I can show you the exact spot. I can show you the the place of the skull. I can tell you where the traditional view of Golgotha is. I can show you all those things. We can go through the Kidron Valley and look up to the Temple Mount. But it doesn't matter. Because the movie was already played when Jesus was there. And he paid the price. When we look at his body, when we look at his blood, you're going to see the same hope. Abraham had to look forward to the Lamb of God coming. We have to look back to the Lamb of God who was slain. When we come to this table, it's all about sin. Has your sin been paid for? I'm going to pray right now as the elders come on up to the front. But during this prayer, of, it's a prayer of application. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I do ask that you will help us to search in our own souls. Help us to understand That the awfulness of Genesis 22 is not that Isaac was being tied to that altar. But it was the fact that there's no way to come into a worshiping setting with God without the forgiveness of sins. Without the payment of sin's price. Isaac would not be able to be in fellowship with God, nor could Abraham, without the true Lamb of God giving his life. Lord, for those of us that are gathered in this place, I pray that we might examine our own souls, that we might be able to look to the cross, both figuratively and literally, that we would recognize that we deserve all the punishment that Jesus took, but he was the ram. He was the one that was caught in the thicket. He was the one that was on cue, was able to step in to our place. Lord, as we see the price that is required for our sin, I pray that we might hate sin all the more, that we will turn from it, that we will run from it, that we will not give room to it, that we will not be enticed by it like we've been before. I pray that we would despise it, that we would not welcome it back. Oh Lord, I pray that we might see that it took the atoning work of Jesus to pay for even the littlest of our sin as well as the greatest. And so as we come to this table today, Lord, I pray that you might remind us that you were the Lamb of God. Come to take away our sin. You were the one that steps in our place. For Isaac did go back home 
with his dad. Just like we'll be able to leave this building today because our heavenly father has provided us an elder brother who took our place, even Jesus. Lord, help us to love you more intimately, to cling to you more dearly as we come to the table today in Jesus' name. Amen. The elders are coming up today. It's going to be